So for those of you joining us um, for the first time, we preach through the Word of God verse by verse normally. Um, I've been preaching through Hosea, and we have come to the hardest part in the prophecies of Hosea. And so like a good dentist who discovers that you have many teeth that need to get pulled, um, he doesn't pull them out one a week, he pulls them all out together. So we're going to be going through chapters 8, 9, and 10 all at once, um, because I think no one would be here by chapter 10 if we waited. That is not to say that this passage has no hope, for our God is a God of hope. Um, but as I was telling my brother Jory, this is a rough passage, but that doesn't mean it's a bad passage. Um, it's a good one. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, what we sang is true. To you alone belongs all glory, all authority, all power. The majesty of the universe, if it weren't for us, would declare your glory sufficiently to the end of time. This morning, Lord, we repent of the distractions um, that we have carried throughout the week. The burdens that we needed not carry, the angers and the insecurities and the anxieties, Lord, that were, we were able to give to you and yet we held on to. Father, we repent of those. We lay them at your feet now. We pray that this morning oh, they would be finally set aside, that we would be able to fully listen and hear what you have for us in your word today. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears this morning to show us your truth and your goodness and your beauty in spite of our infidelity. And Lord, we ask for the grace to take the convictions you give us this morning and make them living and real in our walk with you. And we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So again, I say good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy which he had prepared hand for glory for the lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay in the letter to romans chapter 9 paul asked this hypothetical question what if god desiring to demonstrate his glory and justice to his vessels of mercy, had endured with much patience people, a people that were doomed to destruction? That's a tough question. Paul began the chapter 9 by saying that his heart was burdened, that it was grieved intolerably for the loss of his people by blood, the Israelites. And so today we're going to look at their idolatry um, and the coming of fullness of the cup of wrath that God had for them, um, that what would happen to them next is terrible, that they would be destroyed. Um, some of the passages in here talk about God would smite their children, that they would literally be crushed in war, um, that he would in mercy, prevent most children from even being born because it was going to be so bad for them that they would die in the womb. 
If he had, as Paul is, is hypothetically asking, prepared these vessels, will we listen? Or will we fall into the same cycle of iniquity and idolatry as they did? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Did they suffer these things that we're going to read about today for nothing? Or will we see and repent? Amen? In today's passage, we're going to talk about it. And in fact, it is so bad that another prophet, Isaiah, says that if the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors, we would have been worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, God's wrath was so great upon them that had he not held back, there would have been no Jews today. Are you ready? I'm not. I have been praying and praying and praying over this sermon. Sometimes the Lord gives you a word that you don't want to preach. Amen? So as I said before, this is not a sermon for all ages or audiences. We're going to be talking about some hard things. Fair warning. So um, I'm going to be going through chapters 8, 9, and 10, and I'm going to be doing it um, not verse by verse because there's a lot to unpack. I'm going to be talking about the two main themes. And the first one is um, idols, altars, and kings. And so take a moment to read this passage from Deuteronomy 8. Like the nations that the Lord made to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. There is a bit of serendipity in this because we just, through with Pastor Paul, have been going through Joshua. And Paul um, has very well preached how the Canaanites were warned. They had 400 years of warning to repent, and the vileness of their deeds increased and increased and increased until it says that the cups, the, the Lord's cup of wrath was flowing over, and it was time for them to be destroyed. And Joshua did that, wiped out the people of Canaan. This is saying, it's your turn. You did the same things. You knew better, and you did the same things. So the first part is a king and its consequences. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 4, he says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew them not. Now, perhaps you're with me. When I first read this, I was confused. Because I know from Romans 13 that all authorities on earth are appointed by God. So how could he, wait, wait, how could he not know them? How could they appoint kings without him? Uh, Daniel even goes so far to say that God gives kingship to whomever he will, and he doesn't care what anyone else thinks. He appoints the kings. So this is confusing, right? If we lead a little further on in Hosea 9.15, he says, Every evil of theirs began in Gilgal, and it was there that I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Now that is a profound statement. God is saying, everything that I hate about you started in Gilgal. And because of that, I will no longer love you. I'm going to kick you out of my house. What happened in Gilgal? Does anyone remember? I had to look it up because I wasn't sure. It was in Gilgal at the end of the time of the judges, that the people demanded to have a king. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they demand to Samuel, they say, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say they do. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being the king over them. According to all their deeds they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they have forsaken me and serving other gods. And so now they are doing to you also. We talk sometimes about how the, the sin of Israel um, wanting a king so they could be like other nations. But I don't, think, I don't think I fully understood how grievous this was to the Lord. You see what it's saying? He says, I wanted to be the king over them, but they refused me. And so the Lord gave them their heart's desire. They got to exchange the kingdom of God for a mortal fleshly king. Is this something we can fall prey to? You see, there's only one true king, amen? We just sing about him. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one true king. But there are many counterfeits. And like physical counterfeits of, say, money or art, the most dangerous ones are the ones that seem the most real. Right? There are counterfeits that it's like, well, yeah, my daughter drew that. It's not a, it's not a $5 bill. It, it's made with crayon. Um, and then there are the counterfeits that most people would think are authentic. Those are the dangerous ones. Amen? So what are those counterfeits in our lives? The Apostle Paul warned the church in Corinth. He says, but I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve with his cunning, that your thoughts are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one uh, you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Ouch. He's saying you'll take whatever Jesus or whatever gospel sounds good. That hurts. Is that something we can do? Heaven forbid. I think some of the ways Christian teachers have corrupted the kingship and robbed the crown of its glory are obvious. We have whole cults um, because of that. And then some are not. Have you ever found yourself preferring Christian books over reading the Bible? Anyone want to raise their hand? I do sometimes. I have found myself doing that. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to, this is a great time to confess. Yeah, I love C.S. Lewis. Some of the parts of the Bible, I just can't quite get into it as much. Amen? Yeah. Um, or perhaps you've attended a new Christian Bible study, and, and then you've really discovered after one or two weeks that it's not a Bible study. It's a insert famous author here fan club. Anyone ever found that? Yeah. Amen. How easy it is for us to venerate and devote ourselves to the teaching of man rather than coming to the one true king. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing to be gleaned from Christian writings. That would be folly. But it has to take its proper place in precedence in our hearts. Right? You're in dangerous ground if you find yourself grabbing the latest bestseller on the Christian bookshelf 
instead of going to the Word of God. That's how cults get started. That's how people fall away from worshiping the one true king and get caught up in tangents that are from the devil. So if not carefully guarded, the Christian faith becomes a vehicle for wolves and for wayward sheep to spread their own personal gospels. And by doing so, they draw away the flock into sometimes something as bad as heresy and sometimes merely just distraction. Continuing on with this theme, we have altars and idols. In Hosea 8.11, it says, Although Ephraim has built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I have this wonderful quote from one of my uh, commentaries. It says, This is one of the oldest and most prevalent and most hateful sins amongst mankind. Men have perverted worship. Listen to this. Not only by making false gods, but by making false altars to the one true God. There is only one altar in true worship, and that altar is Christ Jesus. Now, this is incredibly important for us to understand, because there's two ways distinctly to fall into idolatrous worship. The first is to worship false gods. We always talk about that one. That one's easy. But the second is to worship the true living God falsely. Now, what false gods demand our worship? Sure, there are the old pagan deities. There's Zeus and Thor. I'm not really talking about them. I think the more pernicious ones, the more dangerous ones, um, they look much, lurk much closer to home. Materialism, sex, your public image, money, success, patriotism, social reform, and I think the biggest one of them all, me, not me, you, self. The bigger trouble with these idols is that they often, in fact, are worship of Yahweh. How much of the Western church devotion and worship to God is motivated by mammon? Now, I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the Western church as a whole. How much of it is motivated by, if you do this, God will bless you financially in this life. Reap your rewards now. How much of it? They're praying to our God. They're using the name of Jesus. They're praying to Yahweh. But is it corrupt? Yeah, it's idolatry. How many of our pastors fill their appetite for financial success or, God forbid, sex through the fame of the pulpit? How many churches have become propaganda platforms where the people within are more interested in political victory than they are with Christ? How many people are Christians because they think it will benefit them in their work life or their family life or in their finances? If we worship God, we must do it because he alone is God. Amen? And he alone is worthy. Amen? Beware of turning God into a golden calf. He will not abide it. Again in chapter 8, in 4 through 6, it says, They made idols out of silver and gold, but they will be destroyed. 
Oh, Samaria, he has rejected your calf idol. My anger burns against him. They will not survive much longer without being punished, even though they are Israelites. That idol was made by a workman. It is not God. The calf idol of Samaria will be broken into bits. Long before this time, the end of Israel Moses and Joshua went up onto the mountain to receive the law. You might be familiar with this story. The first time they came down, it didn't go too well. While they were there, the people below were getting a little anxious, saying, where are they? It's taking a long time. And so, having a genius idea, they decided to collect all of the jewelry that they brought out of Egypt and melt it into a, and fashion it into a golden calf. And so in Exodus 32, 4 through 5, it says, And Aaron, the priest, received the golden of their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And the priest said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now here's the important thing. I think we miss all the time. What's even more alarming about this is what they called it. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we shall feast to Yahweh. They called the calf Yahweh. They turned God into something profane. They made an idol out of him. Who thought you could do that? They they did it. Indeed, the next day they worshipped and ate and drank and proceeded to play. That's a really kind way of saying have an orgy um, around the altar. And God was so incensed that he vowed to wipe them out. He was going to kill them all. And he, re- he relented only because of Moses' pleas for mercy. So only 3,000 died instead of all of them. But this isn't the last time that the children of Israel made golden calves to worship Yahweh through. Actually, after the division of the kingdom, the first northern king, Jeroboam, did the exact same thing because he was afraid that the northern people would have to go down to Jerusalem and they might like the southern kingdom more than the northern kingdom. So he made two golden calves for them to worship the Lord at. It seems like the children of Israel are hell-bent on idolatry, pardon the pun. In spite of everything that the Lord had shown them and walked through with them, Are we any different by nature? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Romans 1, um, 18 and on, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And listen to this with the knowledge that you have now. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals. They forgot their creator. Now the second theme that we're going to be going through is sowing sin and reaping ruin. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we will reap. In 8.7, there is this famous line that we have read so often, it's kind of become a byword. 
They sow the wind, so they will reap the whirlwind. The stock does not have any standing grain. It will not produce any flour. Even if it were to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Has anyone heard that? If you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. What does it mean? How does one sow the wind? It's a fair question. Now, in my first thought, I, I, I figured, well, if you sow the wind, it means you're sowing nothing, right? Um, and so if you sowed nothing, you shouldn't get anything. You should reap nothing. Isn't that right? Makes sense. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying something way more profound. It's saying they will not just reap no fruit. They will reap the fullness of the wrath of God for sowing nothing. And that brought my mind immediately to Matthew 25. Um, if you sow nothing, you will reap everlasting destruction. Um, if you remember the, the parable of the talents, the last servant, he got the one talent from the king. The king comes back and says, hey, what'd you do with the talent? Everyone else has invested it and doubled or tripled it. And he says, well, I knew you were a wrathful God who reaps what you do not sow, so I hid it in the ground. And we always remember that they, he takes the talent and he gives it to the one who has most. What we often forget is the last part of that verse. It says, and cast this worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. If you sow nothing, you will reap everlasting destruction. And God was going to destroy them for their faithlessness. Now there's another way to look at this that I think is even more um, revealing and helpful. I was pondering sowing the wind. And I thought, well, sowing nothing, that's a good start. But while I was doing it, I was looking out the window of my office and I was watching the trees. And they were in a swelling breeze and the branches were rocking. And what I saw, it wasn't a constant push in one direction, right? It's a chaotic turbulence. The leaves go this way and that way and this way and that way. And God showed me something really interesting that I had never considered before. Perhaps a more accurate interpretation of sowing the wind is that not that they sowed nothing, it's that they, all their efforts, everything they sowed was always thrust in whatever direction their heart happened to be facing in that moment. This way for a moment, that way for another moment. A little bit of righteousness, a little bit of depravity. They sowed their heart's desires. They did what was right in their own eyes. And yes, sometimes that lined up with what the Lord said to do. But they didn't do it because he said to do it. They did it because their heart said, yeah, you probably should throw God a bone right now. He'll be nice to you and you won't get punished. They followed their own hearts. And we know that the heart of man is deceitful above all else. Amen? And so in Hosea 10, 13, he says, You have plowed wickedness and you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your chariots and relied on your many warriors. Now, I want to illustrate this to and fro nature because Hosea, I should say God, has done something incredible with some of the references that we're going to read here in demonstrating this to and fro. But before I get there, I have to show you the references because um, you won't understand. It won't mean anything to you. 
So we're going to get to the three abominations that are mentioned. And this is where it gets a little difficult. It's not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> Hosea 9.10. It says, Then they came to Baal Peor, and they dedicated themselves to shame. They became as detestable as what they loved. See, there are three places mentioned in these passages. And these three places are like signposts of this is where they went wrong. This is where, because of this, that this is happening. And there's these three locations, and they're kind of obscure uh, references. So what is Baal Peor? Well, before the kings, before the judges, Israel hadn't yet received the promised land. And they're on the, um, I'm doing it backwards for you, they're on the uh, east side of the Jordan. Okay, and there's the Moabites there. And Moses is still alive. Um, things haven't been going particularly well for them because they refused to go into the promised land. So yeah, it's kind of a bummer. But while they're over there, a man named Balaam, um, a deceitful prophet, encourages the women to ensnare the Israelites. And they fall into the sin of worshiping Baal Peor. And because of this, 20, was it 24? 24,000 of them die from a plague. Okay, so God obviously wasn't too happy about this. But if you read the Bible, it doesn't say what they did. It just says they worshiped him, and, um, and a bunch of them died. And so I had to do a little digging, some extra biblical stuff. First of all, the word Baal Peor means uh, God of the gap or God of holes. And I'm not going to say exactly what the worship entailed. You can read it in here if you want to find out. But I will say that it is disgusting. Um, actually so disgusting that there was a Gentile person who was um, partaking of all the different things they could find, um, traveling through the land and worshiping all the different deities. And this is the only one they refused to do. That's how ugly it was. And so this shame, um, the people of Israel had become as detestable as this thing they had loved. Okay, so remember Baal Peor. The next one is Gebeah. In Hosea 9.9, it says, They have sunk deep into corruption as the days of Gebeah. He will remember their wrongdoing, and he will repay them for their sins. Well, what happened in Gebeah? Does, uh, does anyone remember the story of the Levite and the concubine? This is for my own interest. Does anyone? One? Two? Three? Four? Okay, four. I'm surprised. Oh, there was a fifth one back there. This is one of those stories, and don't feel bad if you don't remember it, because I'm pretty sure no one has ever preached on it, uh, nor has anyone ever read it to you or encouraged you to read it. It's a terrible story. Um, and again, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it involves the rape to death of a woman by the tribe of Benjamin and um, in the city of Gebeah. So she was killed because of what they did. Um, and it's frankly, it's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah um, as far as the story goes. And if you want to read it, it's in here or it's in Judges chapter 19. Um, so remember Gebeah. And then the third one is Gilgal, and we already talked about that, that all of their evil began in Gilgal. That is the coronation, well, the demand of having a king and the coronation of King Saul. So how does this all fit together? Well, let's go, so remember, we're talking about sowing the wind, that 
sometimes there's some righteousness, but there's a lot of evil mixed in with it, right? That there's no consistency. It's like um, in Roman or in uh, Revelations 3 that um, the lukewarm Christian, isn't. it's not that they're just tepid towards everything. It's just that they're a little hot and then they're a little cold. And a little hot. And if you keep mixing hot and cold water, you get tepid water. That's how I bathe my son, mix hot and cold water. It's pretty easy. Um, but it's not a good thing, a spiritual state to be in. So they keep blowing this way and that. So in Baal Peor, they give in to this terrible sin. And one man, Phineas, who is of the tribe of Levite, he watches a man going with one of the women, the Midianite women, into a tent um, in the midst of everyone weeping over all the dead. For this, And he follows them in with a spear and he stabs right through both of them in the act and kills both of them. And because of his action, God has mercy and stops killing the tribe of Israel. He saves them by putting an end to this sin. So Phineas, um, after Joshua, he is given a city. Guess what the city is called? Gebeah. He's given Gebeah. And less than a generation later, the men of Gebeah raped this woman to death. And so all of Israel comes against Gebeah, or comes against the tribe of Benjamin, kills 25,000 of them, leaves only 600 left. They, they realize we can't kill all the Benjamites because then there'll be no more tribe of Benjamin. They kill all the women, they kill all the children, they wipe out the tribe of Benjamin with the exception of 600 men. And then they do something terrible. Because in the time of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, right? They say, well, you have no wives, so we have a suggestion. Go to Shiloh. All the virgins of Israel will be there during, um, this is during the Passover, and they will be dancing and merrymaking and hide in the vineyards, and when they come out to dance, steal yourselves some wives. Said the elders of Israel. Can you imagine? And so, we did a good thing. We wiped them out. Well, here, let's just make up for that by doing something absolutely atrocious. And because of that, we ended up with King Saul. Guess where Saul was from? Hundreds of years later. Of the tribe of Benjamin in Gebeah. That's where his house was. Do you see this string of sowing the wind? Was Israel ever wholly righteous towards the Lord? Or was it only just for a fleeting moment? I, I use that as an example. You know, this isn't the only situation where they sowed the wind. In every way, they were idolatrous. But I think it's fascinating that God made sure that that was all in this passage, hidden away for us to discover. The Canaanites were given centuries to repent, but they refused and they were annihilated in the conquest of Joshua. The Israelites were given centuries of warning and warning to repent. And here we're reading about the results of their refusal. They had sowed deceit and chaos and wickedness, and they never long turned from it. They always came back. They had cultivated hearts of immeasurable darkness, and now they were reaping the whirlwind. Interestingly, 700 years later, the Jews of Jesus' time so despised the Samaritans 
the remnants of these doomed people that we're reading about today, that they considered them less than human. And you know what? The words of this prophecy, it comforted them in the hatred of the Samaritans. Have you ever wondered why they hated the Samaritans so much? What we're reading today, God hates these people, right? And the Jews say, well, disgusting, absolutely disgusting people. We want nothing to do with you. The lesson they chose to learn was that the northern tribes were evil, not like them, <clears throat> righteous Jews. The lesson we must endeavor to learn cannot be that. We cannot look at these people and say, yes, they were evil and God wiped them out. Good riddance. That would be folly for us to think that that's the lesson God wants us to learn. The first part of our lesson we, is we have to accept that there are dire consequences to sin. True. If we're in Christ and we are in Christ, amen? Amen? Yes, then we are free from the condemnation of sin, sin that leads to eternal death. Praise the Lord. But our actions have ugly consequences. All around us, people suffer for the sins we sow. Can anyone give an amen for that? I can. I have made my family suffer for my sins. I know that this is true. The second lesson we have to learn is that we are not any different than these people of Samaria that we've studied today. There's no secret virtue in being born a Jew instead of a Samaritan, nor is there any virtue in being born a Gentile now instead of a Jew. All of us are born with the same hearts, hearts that seek after what? Deceit, avarice, hunger for appetite. What hope is there then? Jesus' cleansing blood shed for us is the only hope. It's the only hope we'll ever find. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be made a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, used to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about vessels of wrath today, right? God made vessels of wrath with much patience prepared for destruction. We are all born vessels of wrath. But each of us has a choice. Amen? We each have a choice to make. Will we make Christ our king, our only king, or will we make something else our king? Will the altar of our hearts worship him or something else? Let us come to the feet of our Savior and be washed clean with his blood. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, O Israel, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea 10, 12. 
If God prepared with long-suffering the kingdom of Israel as a vessel destined for destruction, will you today learn from their insolence? Indeed, their path is the path of the unrepentant. Have you taken an accounting of your life's treasures, of your life's deficits? Have you come to a point of repentance? Who is the king upon your throne? Amen? Jill, would you come up? We're going to sing in Christ alone, and then I will finish with a prayer and a benediction. Well, I'll pray right now. Father God, we are bankrupt without you. Lord, it is so difficult to look upon the stories written here and find any hope in them, Lord. But our hope doesn't come from words. Our hope comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the work you did upon the cross. You alone, God, are our hope. I pray that we will look on the ugliness of what was done in the past and let it remind us that we are the same and that we have to run to you in repentance in order to be saved. Lord, that the invitation is open to all and has ever been open to all to be made right with you, to accept what you did and let ourselves die upon the cross with you so that we can be raised in newness of life. Father God, help us to do that now. Lord, let your conviction run deep within our hearts to weasel out those kings, those altars, those false gods that have corrupted us. Let us set them aside and be free of them and run the beautiful race set before us in you. Amen. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease Comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me
and you were dead in the trespass in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. Amen. God bless you.